Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I woke with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Over the past few weeks, there's been this pseudo-religious group that's been meeting together in Dallas, Texas, in uh, the Delaney Plaza, the place where President John F. Kennedy was assassinated back in 1963. And this is one of these many QAnon groups that you have been hearing about uh, all through the past year and a half here. Uh, I'm not an expert on QAnon by any stretch, um, and if that's your rabbit hole, of course, you're welcome here in our church. But what is remarkable about this group is that their deep and abiding hope as they gather at this grassy knoll, their deep and abiding hope is that John F. Kennedy, his son, JFK Jr., John F. Kennedy Jr., who died in a plane crash in 1999, they hope that he will return and lead an overthrow of the current political system. Now, that's a lot, right? That That's the core hope of this group. They hope that JFK Jr. comes back uh, and leads a political revolt. And one newspaper report, him, uh, they, they asked them and said to this group, let me get this straight. Your hope is that John F. Kennedy Jr. will return from the dead and lead a political revolution in America. And they, one of the followers said, no, that's preposterous. We don't think he's going to come back from the dead. Uh, we believe he's been hiding in a secret bunker for the past 20 years, and that's where he's going to come from to lead the political revolution here in America. And uh, I checked uh, earlier today. They were there as, as, uh, as recently as five days ago. They were there uh, protesting, partying, singing together. Maybe they'll return when the weather gets warmer this spring, but they're not there as of uh, one o'clock this afternoon on Saturday when I'm recording this. And there's a lot we can take from this episode, I think, about uh, humanity, about people, about religion, about culture, about hope. Um, this is sort of like a secular version of some of the, the hopeful cults we talked about last week, right? The Seventh-day Adventists and the um, Jehovah's Witnesses. These are people who have messianic hopes and dreams and aspirations, but those hopes and dreams and aspirations are coming in the form of a political reality, not a exclusively spiritual one. And um, there's this is sort of a secular version of, of these things, that there's this messianic hope. Maybe there's just something about humanity in general that lends itself to these messianic ideals and hopes. But also, you know, maybe one of the takeaways from this should be that we, living in glass houses, should not throw rocks. Um, because our Advent Servant series uh, today is our sermon series about hope. We're going to talk about hope this week and, and the next three weeks throughout the season of Advent. And as much as we want to throw these QAnon believers and their ilk under the bus, we Christians have hopes that the rest of the world finds just as ridiculous. 
After all, the QAnon believers in Dallas, they balked at the idea that JFK Jr. was going to rise from the dead. No, he's not going to come back from the dead. He's just hiding in a bunker, they said. Um, we, on the other hand, believe that Jesus himself rose from the dead. He was restored to life, and the only thing that was different about pre-crucifixion Jesus and, and post-crucifixion Jesus was some very telling scars. <laughs> uh, when Jesus returns, it's not because he's been secretly hiding in a bunker for 2,000 years. Um, it's because he's been with the Heavenly Father after his death and resurrection. And I imagine this kind of wild skepticism about the claims of Christianity um, that's how the Romans believed when they were first encountering the, the first Christians. Um, Paul is writing to a church in Rome in our reading from Romans chapter 4 today. He's writing a, a letter to the church in Rome as an introduction to himself. Uh, Paul is saying, I want to come visit you soon. Here's some theology for you to review. Here is some encouragement for you uh, in the hardship of being Christians in the Roman world. Here's some chastisement about some things that you have wrong. Uh, but Paul is also writing to a group uh, that is experiencing uh, harassment, hardship, persecution for being different because of their hope. Their hope is not in the Roman uh, establishment, the Roman gods, the Roman emperor. Their hope is in a deceased and risen Jewish carpenter, and the risen part was under dispute by those outside of the community. How wild and trashy and abhorrent the ancient Romans must have thought these Christians to be. The idea that God would become man and return from the dead, we all know that's one thing that doesn't happen, or at least the Romans thought as much. And so what Paul writes alongside all of these encouragements and theology and, and the chastisements, he writes to the, the people of Rome a letter of hope. It's not just that he's writing a dense theological treatise in Romans, the book of Romans, but he's also writing an epistle of hope. Nowhere else in the New Testament does the word hope appear more frequently than it does in the book of Romans. Hope is a cornerstone Christian attitude. Hope is a source of strength for the Christian in hard times. And hope is especially important for Christians living as fish out of water in this sharky, pagan Roman world. And so our Romans reading today from Romans chapter 4 comes in the midst of a longer argument that Paul is making about faith over works. And Paul is reminding his readers that before the law of Moses arrived on the scene, in fact about 400 years earlier, Abraham had a relationship with God that was based on faith and not works. Paul quotes from Genesis 15 uh, in our reading to talk about how Abraham believed God's promises and it was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. And he leans heavily on this God and Abraham interaction because Paul says this is what Christian life is like on our end. We too believe and it is credited to us as righteousness. In Genesis 15, Abraham, you see, was anxious God had promised him kids and grandkids through his wife, Sarah. So many children, they would be, um, there would be nations named after him. But Abraham and Sarah were getting older. They were maybe 65, uh, Sarah and 75, Abraham, when the events of Genesis 15, the events of this reading take place. And the text says that Abraham in the book of Genesis was praying to God and saying, God, we have this deal. You keep talking to me about it, but nothing's happening. 
I follow you, God, and you give me kids and grandkids and so forth. And I have held up my part of the bargain, God. Where are the kids? My wife and I are still barren. What gives? That's Abraham's complaint to God in Genesis 15. And, you know, he's not, what's the word? He's, he's not dumb, okay? Like Abraham, his anxiety, we might say, is well-founded. Because, again, this is a story that started when Abraham was 70 years old, his wife about a decade younger, maybe 60. And God had been over and over again saying, you're going to have a kid, you're going to have a kid, I'm going to give you a kid because you followed me. But biology is working against them, <laughs> um, right? Because, again, they're getting old, and, and we know that the reproductive portion of human life, uh, it fades after a certain time and goes away. And Abraham even does the genealogy. He says, God, if I were to drop dead right now, all of my worldly possessions would show up on the front door of a guy in Damascus named Eliezer. He says, come on, God, like I, I, I need some clarity. I need some help. Help me in my unbelief. Throw me a bone, God. I'm skeptical of your promise. Prove to me that my hope is not in vain. This is uh, God's, um, this is Abraham's complaint to God. And so God has Abraham do this thing. God has Abraham step out of his tent in the early evening and look up at the sky. Abraham, look at all the stars in the sky. Count them if you can. That's how many offspring you will have. So God gives Abraham a visual illustration of the offspring, the great family that Abraham will have. And the text says this, Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Which is to say that God counted Abraham as a good person, not because he was a good person, but because he believed God and had hope for the promise to be filled. Um, so Abraham's story is really a story of hope, isn't it? Um, hope in God's promise being fulfilled. That doesn't mean that his hope is perfect. Doesn't mean that hope is easy. You can go back through Genesis and read throughout Abraham's life, his struggle to navigate a life of hope and faith in God's promises. And, and that's the circumstance, the historical circumstance that Paul brings forward to his readers as he gets to the end of Romans chapter 4. Paul, Paul's audience would have known this. They would have been familiar with Abraham. And yet Paul says that the Christian faith is a lot like Abraham's hope. This is what Paul says. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Paul says that Abraham was hoping against hope. Abraham was hoping against hope. The disparity between Abraham's present circumstances and the reality that God was promising, that gap was fairly large and growing. And yet Paul says Abraham continued to believe and God blessed it for him wildly. And I think Paul has a good point. Our hope and Abraham's hope, they're, they're not really different. Abraham believed that he would have a biological child at age 100 with his 90-year-old wife. 
when his body, as Paul eloquently describes, was functionally dead and his wife's body was past the age of childbirth. By all accounts, this is a biological impossibility. But you and I also believe in a biological impossibility. You and I believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. Even though Jesus' body was demonstrably dead, by all accounts, a biological impossibility, we believe that he rose from the dead, that death had no hold on Jesus Christ. And so there are a few things, however, even though our hopes are the same, there are a few things where, where we, as Christians living in the year 2000, we actually have um, a couple of reasons why our hope may be a little easier to come by. So even though there are some similarities between our hope uh, and Abraham's hope, there are some things that are different too. And there are a handful of reasons why I think uh, our hope comes maybe a little easier than Abraham's. So here's three reasons why I think our hope is better than Abraham's. First, we have the benefit of hindsight. We have plenty of examples of God holding up his end of the bargain in the past to look at. We have a track record of, of watching God fulfill his promises. Abraham didn't have that. He, he really was kind of the first guy, as it were, to see God fulfilling promises in his own life. And so you think about God fulfilling the promise to Abraham, as in that, that child came, the, the promised child came. Uh, that he did have a child at 100 while his wife was 90 as you know think about that a little bit but it's a lot <laughs> so so that did happen but we also have God holding up his promises to Moses about leading the people out of slavery in Egypt God also holds up his promises again and again to folks like King David and the prophets and so we have stories of God coming through um, that Abraham didn't have. And so we have God's track record to look at and say, okay, well, God does come through on his promises. He hasn't failed us yet. Secondly, we have the benefit of the Bible, which is to say the Bible is itself a remarkable book and a gift from God. And there are plenty of people who try to, to sort of tear away at the Bible. Um, they, they, they'll say things like, oh, the Bible is filled with textual errors and the Bible is full of contradictions and the Bible is untrustworthy. The original manuscripts were corrupted. Uh, and, and none of that is true, actually. Um, the, the original sort of Bible as we have it, we believe, and I think it's, it's again, this is very scholastic things, but the odds that the original people of, of the Bible said something different than what we currently have in our book is so minuscule that it's to be laughable, right? Um, the scholastic work done to keep the Bible intact as it was originally meant to be is top-notch. Even if you have a half-decent Bible, you can crack it open and you can look in the footnotes in the bottom and they will tell you if there are any difficulties uh, where you, um, there are some sort of scholastic questions about what the text actually means. But it's such a small percentage of the Bible. We are so confident that we have actually what was presented to us throughout history we're reading the same books and texts that the early Christians were. It's just a no-brainer. As one scholar said um, once, he said, if we can't trust the accuracy of the Bible with all of the manuscript data and scholarship we've put into it, 
after all the sort of uh, hemming and hawing and careful interpretations of what we're trying to do and the scholarship that's gone on and the archaeology, he says, if we can't believe that we have the Bible as it was meant to be um, passed on from generation to generation, well, then we could just throw out the trustworthiness of every single ancient thinker out there. Like, if we can't trust the Bible, then throw out everything you know about Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Seneca, the Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Homer, Lao Tzu, forget them all, right? Uh, in fact, if you can't trust the Bible, then you really just can't trust anything ever written down before the invention of the printing press in 1436. I mean, there's, there's more we can talk about here, but that's for another day. We actually have a book where the promises of God are kept for generation for generation, and they were written down for our learning and for our benefit. Third and, and final um, reason why our hope is better is we have the benefit of the communion of saints, which is to say, unlike Abraham, we don't have to hope alone. We have hope in the resurrection of the dead together in this church. You have it. I have it. We all have hope in the forgiveness of our sins. We all have hope that Jesus is going to return. We're not alone here on this Sunday, even though some of you may be feeling alone because you're listening on your couch. You're with us in spirit. You're not alone. Not only this, there are generations of people who have placed their trust in the Christian gospel. Uh, you can go back to folks like St. Augustine, right? Or maybe um, Dorcas, a.k.a. Tabitha from Acts chapter 9, or the Ethian, uh, Ethiopian eunuch from Acts chapter 8. You can look at uh, Martin Luther, my Protestant reformer buddy. You can look at the martyred Catholic Archbishop of um, El Salvador named Oscar Romero. Um, you can look at the almost martyred Bishop Ben Kwashi of Jos, Nigeria. I mean, we're talking about people from all over time and all over the world who have played a part in this great community of the hopeful. When I was serving on a mission trip back in 2008, we visited a Chinese retirement center. It was sort of a, a, a nursing home like Bethlehem, except um, maybe not as well kept. And uh, folks there were aging and they didn't have anyone to take care of them. So they got together there. And the older folks, you know, they were there. They thought it was very funny to see a group of Americans visiting. And a few members of my team met with an elderly woman in her apartment. And this woman was in her 90s in 2008. She was not much longer for this world. And through a believing translator, one of our team members asked, uh, maybe a little blunt for the culture, but she asked a question about death. And the older woman said, I do not know where I will go when I die, but my grandparents, when I was a child, took me to a Christian school. And so to date this, this is before the communist revolution. This is a very, very, very long time prior. Um, this woman had seen many terrible and horrible things in her life. And this woman said to my, my friends on the mission team, she said, my grandparents loved me and I miss them. I hope I get to see them in Christian heaven when I die. My friends on the team prayed for her and those prayers moved this 90-year-old woman to tears. And then she recalled the Lord's prayer from her childhood and recited it to them in return in Chinese. And I believe that this woman was indeed reunited with her grandparents in Christian heaven. I believe that her hope will be fulfilled, just like the Ethiopian eunuch and my friend, the Bishop of Archbishop of Nigeria and John Newton and Oscar Rome, all these people. I believe that her hope is fundamentally no different than the hope we all have today. 
which is to say that we hope differently from our QAnon friends in Dallas. In fact, we hope a little differently than Abraham, too, because we have history on our side. We have the written testimony and we have the saints on our side. We are not alone. And this is what Paul gets at in our reading. He says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, Abraham's sake, but our sake also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Jesus Christ our Lord, who delivered up who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul says at the end of the reading that these words, this hope that Abraham has is not just for Abraham, it's for you and for me and the Christians in the Church of Rome and for Paul himself. We are not hoping against hope today. We are instead joining a long and storied line of fellow saints who have a sure and certain hope in the Christian gospel. The rest of the world may think we're as foolish as the QAnon hopefuls in Dallas, but they said that to Abraham, and they said that to Paul. They said that to the rest of them, too. Today, friends, is the first Sunday in Advent, an appropriate season for hope. We don't just prepare our hearts in Advent for Christmas, although we certainly do this. It's good to take some time and get ready for a big holiday and celebrate the gift of Jesus Christ to the world. We do that, but we also prepare our hearts for Jesus' second coming as well. Jesus came once, he will certainly come again. And the wisdom of Advent is that we overlap these two seasons of hope. The season of hope for those who are waiting for Jesus the first time, and the season of hope that is ours, where we wait for Jesus to return and come a second time. Our hope is very similar to the hope of Israel. When Isaiah was prophesying, when John the Baptist was preaching, when Mary the God-bearer was making her way to Bethlehem. Friends, all of us have placed our hopes in God's promises. He came once for them, and I tell you this morning, he will come again for us. This is our great and only hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, lay down in green, broke with the keys, fell on that day, firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid death in his grave. Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.